Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 7, European Alchemy. In this episode, we shall discuss how medieval Europe regained alchemical practices. But first, I ask that you support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Practical chemistry in Europe in the Middle Ages was conservative. Methods were passed from parent to child, and details were kept secret. But soap, plaster, lye, dyes, metallurgy, leatherworking, and glass were all continuing practices. From the Byzantine Empire, a copy of a manuscript on pigmenting and dyeing leather, mosaics and gilding, originally dating from 600 CE, but recopied in the 8th century, describes preparation of cinnabar. Modern chemists call it mercury 2 sulfide, from sulfur with mercury, along with the first known mention of vitriol. By around 800, we know of the first mention of alcohol from the mapai clavicula, Latin for little key to painting. The alcohol is described as a liquid distilled from wine that ignites without burning anything else that is, a dilute solution of alcohol in water. A third manuscript from the 10th century, De Coloribus et Artibus Romanorum, Latin for On the Colors and Arts of the Romans, is a manual for artisans on how to make artificial jewelry and enamel. Western Europeans began significant interactions with the various Arab rulers around the year 1000. During the 11th century, crusades began, with the goal, according to Christians, of liberating the Holy Land from the infidel Muslims. By 1099, the goal was achieved, with four small crusader states ruling parts of the area. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Edessa, the Principality of Antioch, and the County of Tripoli. Simultaneously, the Arabs, who ruled all but the northernmost sections of the Iberian Peninsula under the name Al-Andalus, were losing control of the northern sections to Christians. The back-and-forth control in the Middle East and Spain and Portugal, alongside the Arab traders, increased cultural contact between Europeans and Arabs. And this contact brought European scholars to appreciate the great science of the Arabs, including alchemy. The spread of paper in the Arab world since the Arabs captured Chinese papermakers in 751 allowed much cheaper books to be written, which began to filter back into Europe. Starting with Gerbert, a French scholar who later was Pope Sylvester II, translators started to examine Arabic manuscripts of ancient Greek and modern alchemy and rewrite them into Latin. Better and more complete versions of Aristotle's writings caused his philosophy to rise in importance again. This flood of information from classical times and more recent Arab alchemy took a while for scholars to digest. At this time, Italian glaziers invented a newer glass that melted at higher temperatures and was harder and clearer. This made the glass suitable for stained glass windows for which medieval cathedrals were famous. The high melting temperature also made the glass useful for chemical apparatus, especially for glass blowing into unusual shapes, which led to eyeglasses by the 1200s. 
The first known portrait of a person wearing glasses is that of Ugo of Provenzano in 1352. With glasses to correct vision, older people could continue reading or working in detailed crafts. So, yet further amplified the spread of the cheaper paper books now available in Europe. The second practical result of better glass in Italy was the isolation of alcohol. Condensing columns during distillation could be longer and narrower, so you had a larger surface to volume ratio for more efficiency. By 1167, relatively pure alcohol was attained, likely in Italy. Alcohol itself was a chemical of major importance. If you recall from a previous episode about esoteric alchemy, distillation was analogous to a religious event. Alcohol is still called spirit, recalling a belief that alcohol is like a ghost or supernatural spirit. In this case, distillation of drab colored swill can bring forth a perfectly clear liquid that burns with a bright blue flame. And ingesting the liquid itself has an interesting psychological effect as well. Among the first to distill alcohols were monks, who were also vintners. These monks sometimes considered this unusual liquid, like water but not water, as perhaps the quinta essentia, the fifth element of the heavens. But monks were forbidden in 1288 to distill, maybe because it was too much like magical alchemy. Another practical advantage that alcohol has is as a solvent. It can dissolve all sorts of substances that water cannot oil, lacquer, perfume, and wax. The first alchemist of importance in medieval Europe was Albert of Bolstadt, Germany, born around 1200 and lived until 1280. Often he is called Albertus Magnus, Latin for Great Albert. He promoted Aristotelian four element theory and philosophy, but is sometimes credited with the discovery of arsenic, for he described it very clearly. The Catholic Church designated Albert as the patron saint of scientists in 1941. A contemporary of Albertus Magnus was Thomas Aquinas. He asked the question if alchemists made actual gold metal, what is illegal about selling it as real gold? Nothing. Nothing prevents us from using natural methods to achieve natural ends, and alchemy was a natural method. Around this time also lived the monk and scholar from England, Roger Bacon. He believed that experimentation, unlike appeal to church authorities and ancient philosophers, combined with mathematical methods, would advance knowledge, though his view held little sway for centuries thereafter. We should be careful, however, not to hail him as a modernist, for experiments to him were made to confirm scripture. Bacon was also the first known European to describe that new material, gunpowder, only recently arrived from Europe. Gunpowder was a significant factor in crushing the medieval feudal system, because with gunpowder you can destroy castles and shoot knights in armor. By at latest 1324, Europeans figured out how to enclose gunpowder in a cannon so as to shoot projectiles like stones and iron balls. Gunpowder also, of course, contributed to European colonialism in the 18th through 20th centuries. Therefore, late medieval rulers needed a ready supply of sulfur and saltpeter to synthesize gunpowder, and those alchemists who could do so were acclaimed.
Even more important than Albertus Magnus, though, was the false Jeber, for he used the pseudonym Jeber, who probably lived around the year 1300. Some scholars believe he was a Franciscan friar, Paul of Taranto, in southern Italy. Others suspect he was a Spaniard. No one really knows for sure. One of the great discoveries the false Jeber mentioned was the knowledge of strong mineral acids, sulfuric acid and nitric acid. Because these acids were derived from rocks and minerals, they were therefore called mineral acids, unlike vinegar and sour milk derived from living matter. We might regard the knowledge of mineral acids as comparable to smelting iron in the early historical era because all sorts of previously undissolvable substances could now be dissolved and new chemical reactions were possible. Even today, the top chemical used in industry is still sulfuric acid. One of the false Jeber's writings, quoted here in Salzburg's From Caveman to Chemist, describes how to purify soda. Or, as chemists call it, sodium carbonate. Soda is purified like common salt. First, it is ground and entirely dissolved in warm water, afterwards, filtered and solidified and calcined with gentle fire. The word solidified here means cooled till the salt precipitates out, and the word calcined means heated to drive out the water of crystallization. Note how easy this is to read as opposed to bolos of Mendes. One of the immediate uses for mineral acids was in assaying metals for purity. Non ferrous metals were in relatively short supply in early medieval times, which was remedied by a discovery of copper ore in the Hartz Mountains of Germany in 968. By 1136, a load of silver was found in Saxony, prompting a silver rush not unlike the California gold rush many centuries later. But when the low hanging fruit, that is, the best ores, were exploited and miners had to work lesser grade ores, some way of assaying these ores was needed. And when each country of Europe had its own coinage, with different proportions of gold, silver, and copper in each coin, likewise, some way of assaying the properties of the money was needed. So the discovery of nitric acid became valuable. And then with hydrochloric acid, another mineral acid available, The mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acids was called aqua regia, Latin for royal water, because only it would dissolve gold. So, metallurgists would place a drop of nitric acid on an allegedly silver coin. If the liquid drop turned green, the silver contained significant amounts of copper. If the supposedly gold coin reacted with the nitric acid, it clearly wasn't gold. This is the ultimate origin of the phrase acid test. Weaving cloth was one of the great medieval industries. To dye this cloth, both a dye and a mordant, a chemical that fixed the dye to the cloth so it wouldn't dissolve or wash out, was needed. That chemical typically was alum. In the early medieval times, most alum in Europe was imported from northern Africa or Egypt. But the rise of the Italian economy and merchants, Meant a new extra source of alum was needed to fix dyes into ever more cloth. In 1275, the city state of Genoa rented an alum works in Phocaea, now modern Turkey, from the Byzantine emperor. Something like 8,000 tons of alum was shipped every year for a couple of centuries from Phocaea until 1455 to the weaving center of Flanders. 
Environmental degradation in Europe became a problem with expanding population and consequent expanding agriculture. We shall discuss environmental chemistry later in this series, but at this point we can talk about the loss of forests all over Europe to farmland. Forests were important, not just from an environmental perspective, but for smelting fuel and the growing shipping industry. Boats were made of wood, and wood was also needed for the heat to win metal from its ores. Coal was tried in 1190 in Belgium for iron smelting, but it didn't work, and wouldn't for another half millennium. But coal was suitable for heating buildings, and became such a problem that the King of England received a petition to outlaw coal burning in 1273. This is the earliest complaint we have about air pollution. A century later, the combination of smoke from coal combustion and fog became the famous London fog. Even so, Metallurgy ramped up in the High Middle Ages, and furnaces to keep up with the demand for metal had to scale up in size. By the 13th century in the Rhineland, large furnaces about four meters high were smelting iron at up to 1,000 kilograms per smelting. The production of bronze improved to the point that cast bronze bells were made by the end of the 7th century for church use, and similar iron bells by the mid 13th century. In Europe, too, like previous attempts in Egypt and the Arab world, alchemy became more and more problematic. The search for transmutation to gold was all important, populated with charlatans and sorcerers more than ever. And still, no one could definitively transmute cheap metals into gold. The existence of acid tests for metals began to call into question the whole four element system anyway. The idea of an elixir for immortality was sacrilegious to the church because this was not eternal life as per the Catholic religion. Magical mixtures were witchcraft. Alchemy was forbidden again by the church, notably under Pope John XXII in 1317. All clergy who performed alchemy were excommunicated by 1323. The King of France banned people from owning alchemical apparatus in 1380. King Henry IV in England also banned alchemical work in 1404, and Venice did likewise in 1418. Alchemists once again were driven to their work underground and secretly, for the lure of riches beat out public persecution. Meanwhile, during the collapse of the feudal system, partly by gunpowder's power, and partly by the Black Death killing swaths of Europe's population, A new European middle class arose, driven by mercantilism. Exploration of better routes for trade by Venetian marine traders to England up the Iberian coast, to the Far East in the 13th century through the 15th century, was assisted by importation of the magnetic compass. In this way, new trade routes without the Arab middlemen were found. The Black Death, though, instilled a growing interest in alchemy as related to medicine. At that time, general practice was to pray for healing or make a pilgrimage to a shrine where the priest would reveal various relics, perhaps even touch them to the sick person. A last resort for the ill, especially for the wealthy, was the physician. Physicians of the Middle Ages in Europe were educated as per the knowledge from the ancient Greek Hippocrates and the Roman Galen. Like the four element theory, these doctors viewed illness as a product of four humors that coursed through the body blood, black bile, yellow bile, 
and phlegm. A disease was ultimately an imbalance of these four liquids, and treatment meant to rebalance them properly. So, if you had chills, you sat by a fireplace. If you supposedly had too much blood, you were bled to remove it. Medications by Hippocrates were derived from plants and minerals. Those from Galen included disgusting and even dangerous materials, including excrement, lice, bird droppings, or snake venom. Often the medications had so many ingredients, it would be hard to know which might be an active ingredient. Another fourth option for the less wealthy was to visit a seer or folk practitioner who would try sympathetic magic. So, if you had a cancerous tumor, the magician would affix a crab, Latin name is cancer, to the site, and then kill the crab. The first faint improvements in medical treatments began around 1200. At this time, Franciscan monks started practicing folk medicine. These are the same group that was involved in distillation of alcohol, and so they added alcohol as a medical treatment. Using the esoteric alchemical philosophy, they believed that alcohol was pure, distilled out from dirty existence, and likewise the dirty illness would be removed with application of pure alcohol. Little did they realize that alcohol is an antiseptic and killed many parasites and microorganisms that infect people. It perhaps also relaxed the sick people and helped them to heal on their own. And thus did medicinal alchemy gain adherence. John of Rupasissa, a Franciscan monk from Catalonia in the 14th century, in the healing tradition of his order, decided that the cause of illness was some kind of corruption. Therefore, the goal of alchemy was to purify this corruption with new medicines. He was a believer that alcohol was the quinta essentia, or that alcohol contained the quinta essentia. In fact, to John, everything contained at least a little bit of the quintessence, and thus it could be distilled or sublimed out from substances. So he and his disciples determined to find what materials could be good sources of the quintessence. They took bricks, dirt, excrement, urine, anything and everything, and subjected them to alchemical treatments. Though they never found a quintessence, they did discover some new chemicals in the process. Their field became called iatrochemistry, from the Greek word iatros, meaning physician or medicine. Among the materials they found were ammonia from distilled urine, which did have a medical usage. Antimony sulfide was another, which has long been used for stomach ailments and skin irritation. Antimony sulfide is gold-colored, too, and likely the Chinese interest in gold as an elixir influenced John and his iatrochemists. One of his more famous medicines was a potable gold, actually gold or silver dipped into alcohol. The gold is inert to alcohol, but perhaps the alcohol had some minor healing properties. The whole field of iatrochemistry, that is, medicinal alchemy, became vaguely respectable, unlike the exoteric or esoteric versions of alchemy, for its ultimate goal was healing. On the other hand, the iatrochemist needed to be exceedingly careful, for one white powder could help, while another one could kill. Modern chemists know that arsenic, bismuth, and antimony have similar chemical properties, but that solubility plays a major factor in their toxicity. For example, arsenic salts are very soluble so that they get absorbed into the circulatory system and kill the patient.
Antimony is somewhat less soluble, so it ranks a bit lower on the toxicity scale. Bismuth is very insoluble in the liquids in the gastrointestinal tract, so it cannot be well absorbed, and its antiseptic properties remain there and don't affect the patient per se. With all the careful chemical separations and purifications needed for medicines, inevitably doubts began to form in the iatrochemists' minds about the ancient Greek philosophy. Separation of mixtures showed the presence of starting materials, so the Aristotelian idea that proportions of reactants don't matter was wrong. Properties of pure substances seemed to be constant. Overall, the general feeling was that chemicals are real and not the ideal essences of philosophy. The problem was that these medicinal alchemists had no theoretical alternative. So, we have seen in this episode that practical chemistry advanced during the Middle Ages in Europe. An amazing variety of new substances were discovered and purified, among which included alcohol and mineral acids. And the first serious doubts about the four-element theory from Aristotle started to percolate through alchemists' ideas. In our next episode, we shall talk about the decline of European alchemy in the Renaissance. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (music) 